This sermon was recorded at Highway Mountain View in Mountain View, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. Thank you, Barry, for your, uh, your infectious enthusiasm. In case you haven't figured it out, Barry functions as the CFO of the fall retreat. That's the chief fun officer. And uh, he does an amazing job uh, helping us do something that is hard for us to do as a community, but that is something that is so rich and something that a setting like a retreat really facilitates, and that's for us to have fun together. And uh, that is something that, that is one of the many things that we enjoy about the fall retreat. But again, if you're wondering if you should come, the answer is yes. So be with us on November 8th through 10th, and we've got a lot more information for you in the courtyard. Well, it is great to see all of you this morning. Thank you for being here, and it is great to sing with you this morning. That was that was lovely, and what a joy and a privilege that it is for us to come together as a community and join our voices in the praise and worship of God. Well, last Sunday, we talked about the emphasis uh, that we see in Scripture about the importance of remembering. And we took some time uh, to remember together who we are and what we are called to as a church through the lens of our name, the Highway Community. And we talked about how the name Highway, which comes from the image of the Highway of Holiness on Isaiah chapter 35, reminds us that the journey that we are on as followers of Jesus is a journey of transformation. That the journey of, that we are on as followers of Jesus is a journey of transformation. And then we also talked about how the other part of our name, community, which is what we see that that first church in Acts 2 that Barry just referred to so vividly embodied Community, importantly, reminds us that we are called to journey together, that our journey along the highway of holiness is a shared one. We are called to journey together interdependently. And this morning, we are beginning a new four-week teaching series exploring the nature of that journey of transformation that we are on together. The Apostle Paul writes these words to the followers of Jesus in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, Paul importantly reminds us there that the journey that we are on is a journey of being transformed into the image or into the likeness of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we are on a journey of being transformed into his likeness. And a fundamental question that emerges as we think about what it means to be transformed into the image or the likeness of Jesus is, who is Jesus? And interestingly enough, that's a question that Jesus actually knocked around with his disciples as they were traveling around Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 14, we read that they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. We see there from the disciples' response that there were a lot of different opinions about who Jesus was. Some people saw Jesus as the second coming of John the Baptist. 
Some saw him as the second coming of Elijah or Jeremiah. And still others saw him as one of the prophets. And it's interesting, by the way, that that very much continues to be the case today. Right? There continue to be all kinds of opinions about who Jesus is. But Matthew makes it very clear from the beginning of his narrative that Jesus is much more than any of those opinions. Matthew's gospel begins with the genealogy that traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Abraham. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 begins, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jerome, Jerome the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Ehud, Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. <sighs> now, you're all clapping because that is definitely not the most engaging and exciting reading that we find in the Gospels. However, as mundane as that text might feel for us today as modern readers, but as you might imagine, there is a lot going on in that list of names. Right, for Matthew, what we just read is not simply a list. Right, there's a reason that Matthew begins his story of Jesus this way. And it's central to how he wanted his original audience to see Jesus, and it's central to how he wants us to see Jesus as well. Now, this past Christmas, some of you may remember our lineage teaching series, right, where we looked together at the stories of some of the most intriguing and surprising names that Matthew includes there in the line of Jesus. 
and how the stories of those individuals actually foreshadow for us Jesus' person and his mission. Right? People like Jacob and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary, Jesus' mother. And that is definitely part of the story that Matthew is telling through his genealogy. But there's another story that Matthew is telling through this list of names, and it is highlighted for us there at the very end in verse 17. Matthew says there, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, this summary that Matthew gives here in verse 17 is not simply there uh, as the ancient world equivalent of the TLDR abbreviation that we sometimes see in emails, online forums, blog posts, and articles. Right? TLDR stands for too long, don't read. And it's a way for, it's a, way for a writer to acknowledge that you know, what is either coming before or what is following is super long possibly over-detailed and containing unnecessary details. And so as a result of that, here's the bottom line. Here's the point, in case you don't want to be bored with all of the details. Right? And so, for example, if you were asking someone about what happened with a certain situation that, they, that you knew that they were in, they might reply to you, thanks for, thanks for asking, TLDR, everything got resolved. Right? And then they might go on to describe all of the minutiae about what happened and how all the events unfolded and so on. Right? Verse 17 here in Matthew chapter 1 is not Matthew's version of too long don't read. Right? As if all of the names that have preceded this verse are not important. Right? And it's also not there simply to keep the small percentage of hearers and readers who might actually be wondering as they navigate through this list how many generations are actually listed there. It's not just there to keep them from counting either. Verse 17 is there to highlight a story that Matthew is actually telling through this list of names. And verse 17 says that there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to exile, and 14 generations from exile to the Messiah. And so Matthew is highlighting for us that this list of names is, is not haphazard, it's actually intentionally structured in order to tell a story. And the story it's been structured to tell is Israel's story. And as we look more closely right, at those three groups of 14 generations, we see Matthew deliberately distilling the whole of Israel's story down in order to highlight two significant events. One is Israel's ascent into kingship, with David, and the other is their descent into exile, right? which was a crushing experience for the nation as they lost the land that God had promised to them and also saw the temple that symbolized God's presence destroyed. Now, David's name is significant in all of that, of course, because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God established a covenant with him, promising that he would make David's name great and establish his throne forever. And as the Israelites were in the midst of the experience of exile, God continued to remind them through the voices of the prophets that one day he would raise up a savior from the line of David 
to deliver them. And so we see that Matthew has very deliberately structured his genealogy in order to emphatically proclaim that Jesus is coming as the culmination of Israel's story. Jesus is coming as the Messiah. He's coming as king, the king from the line of David for whom God's people had long been waiting. And all of that is very dramatically underscored as we return to Jesus' conversation with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. And after asking his disciples who people in general say that he is, Jesus turns the question to his 12 devoted followers. Matthew chapter 15, verse 16, he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter, who often functioned as the spokesperson for the disciples, answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. Jesus is the king. And that is the image into which we are being transformed. We are on a journey of being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, the king. And we learn a lot about the nature of our journey of transformation. We learn a lot about what our journey of transformation looks like from the kind of king that Jesus is. We read in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible. Paul writes that Jesus is before all things, and God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And so Jesus was the fullness of God in human form. But nevertheless, despite all of that, we read in Philippians chapter 2 that even though Jesus was God by nature, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 says that Jesus made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In Jesus, we see the very epitome of humility. As king, Jesus had every right to be served. But instead, what we repeatedly see Jesus doing is humbling himself in order to serve others. The night before his betrayal and arrest, Jesus gathered his disciples together to share one final meal with them. And we read in John chapter 13 that after Jesus and his disciples had finished eating, Jesus got up from the table. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist and then proceeded to show his disciples what John calls the full extent of his love by doing what? By washing his disciples' feet. And foot washing in Jesus' day was a, meaning, was a menial task that was typically relegated only to the lowliest of servants. And so it's not surprising that in the midst of this experience, Jesus' disciples were uncomfortable with their Lord and Master washing their feet. It didn't seem right to them, right? which is precisely why Peter, you might remember, 
tried to reject what Jesus was doing and object to what he was doing. But it was consistent with what Jesus had taught them. Right in Mark chapter 10, verse 42, after a disagreement among the disciples about who was the greatest, we read in Mark 10, 42, that Jesus called his disciples and said, together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we see there that in Jesus' economy, greatness doesn't come through power, doesn't come through position, it does not come through authority. Instead, it comes through humility. Greatness for Jesus is seen in humble service. Jesus came as a humble king. And in addition to being a humble king, we also see that Jesus is a compassionate king. And throughout the course of his ministry, we see Jesus again and again and again seeing the needs of others and doing something about it. There's the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus saw her spiritual thirst in her loneliness and isolation and distance from community. And he offered her living water in the form of belief in him. There's the woman who was caught in adultery, who was spared from being stoned by the religious leaders because of Jesus' intervention. The demon-possessed man in the region of the Gadarenes, who Jesus re-civilized and welcomed back from isolation into community. The deaf and mute man who was healed. The woman who was suffering from perpetual bleeding. The man in the synagogue with the withered hand. The paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. The man born blind. And that's just scratching the surface. That Jesus was constantly aware of the needs around him and especially aware of those who were invisible to society at large. That Jesus is a compassionate king. Jesus came as a humble king. He came as a compassionate king. And we also see that Jesus came as a sacrificial king. That Jesus' life on earth was not his own. His life was not about his own wants, his own desires, his own dreams, or his own aspirations, or whatever it was that he might have thought that he, was, that he deserved or was entitled to. And all of that is something that we see very vividly as Jesus wrestled with his father in prayer on the night of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? Jesus, on that night, after the Last Supper, was confronted with the fear of everything that lay ahead of him, the fear of his journey of obedience to the cross, and all of the pain, and all of the torture, and all of the scorn that he knew was going to accompany that. And as that fear fell on him, Jesus, understandably, from a human perspective, wanted out of it. And so he asked his father for a way out. He asked him to please take this cup from me. But Jesus' repeated prayer 
as he interacted and wrestled with his father in the garden. Yet not what I will, but what you will. That repeated prayer resulted in Jesus sacrificing his own will and embracing instead the will of his father, which of course led to Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Jesus is a sacrificial king. And so we are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus the king. And that not only defines the nature of our journey of transformation, it also importantly informs the purpose of our transformation as well. It also informs the purpose of our transformation. And that purpose has its roots all the way back in the creation story in Genesis. In the very same way that we've seen Matthew's gospel intentionally establishing Jesus as king, that the creation narrative in Genesis, right, through the pattern that we see there of God announcing and commanding and separating and naming things as he brings order and function to the chaos of what Genesis calls the formless and empty, and in the same way that Matthew's narrative establishes Jesus as king, that creation narrative of Genesis is establishing God as king. And it's in that very image, that in the image of God as king, that we see in Genesis that humankind is created. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says that we are created in the image of God the king. And as God blesses humankind, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, he also gives us a special role. He gives us a role as partners in his work of caring for and maintaining his sacred space of creation. And so we are created in the image of God the King in order to be partners in his work. And so as we are shaped into the image of Jesus the King, we are partners as well. As we are shaped into the image of Jesus as king, we are partners as well. God sent his one and only son to earth with a mission. And Jesus came to earth in order to restore God's presence with his people, which had been broken by sin, and to inaugurate God's kingdom on earth. And over the next four weeks, as our series, The Missionary, continues, we are going to be looking together at Jesus' mission of proclaiming and embodying this kingdom of God on earth. We'll be looking at our role in, as partners in that mission and the role that we have in continuing that mission. And then we will also be looking together at the vital role that the church plays in all of that as well as we are formed into the likeness of the humble, compassionate, and sacrificial King Jesus in order to live as missionaries in the places where we are. The band is going to come and create some space for us this morning to reflect and respond together as we close. And as they do, you will notice around the room that there are three different communion stations. There's one over here to the left, one to my right, and there's also one in the back of the room as well. And the elements that are at each one of those tables the bread, which represents Jesus' body, and the cup, which represents Jesus' blood, 
are reminders for us of the humble, compassionate, and sacrificial journey that Jesus the King made to the cross so that we might experience life in God's presence both today and for eternity. And so at any point as we sing together, you are welcome, if you would like, uh, to make your way to one of those stations, get the elements, and then partake of them whenever you're ready, either at the station or after you return to your seat. And so as we enter into this time celebrating Jesus the King, would you pray with me? And before I pray, I want to invite you to take just a moment in the silence of this space to listen. And as you consider Jesus, the King, and the journey of being transformed into that image. What do you hear from the Spirit this morning? What might the Spirit be saying to you about humility or compassion or sacrifice? What might the Spirit be inviting you into? What might you be hearing about your journey of transformation into the image of the King? Or maybe, as you think about Jesus the King, maybe this morning you're sensing a tension or something that for some reason makes you feel wary or uncomfortable or unsure. But whatever it might be, pay attention to that as we embark on this series. Take a moment just to listen. Father, we thank you for a God who is living and active and who speaks to us through the presence of your spirit in our lives. And Holy Spirit, would you attune us to your voice? 
And as we consider the reality this morning of Jesus as King, and Father, we sit in awe at your goodness and your grace. We sit in awe of your mercy and your faithfulness. And we sit in awe at the magnitude of your love for us. All embodied in the humility and compassion and sacrifice of Jesus the King. Father, we are in awe that through Jesus you have invited us into this great story. Story that's been going on through the millennia and that continues on in our lives, in our community, and in this place today. And we are humbled not just to be on this journey of transformation, but we're humbled by the purpose that exists for all of it as well. Father, as we consider the various places where you have us along this journey of transformation into your likeness, would you open us up to what this particular mile marker in the journey has for us? Would you make us receptive to the things that you want us to hear? And would you give us courage to follow you into the places that you would have us go? We love you, Father, and we thank you for the privilege of being a part of making your kingdom visible on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.